This podcast is brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. Thanks for listening. Here's our show. What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Fletka. I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell is still going on in that world out there? Every week, the question becomes deeper and more profound. Uh, today, we are <laughs> trying to figure out what the hell is going on with Iran. So, you know, there's this whole debate going on about Iran's role in the October 7th attacks, Iran's role in whether they planned and coordinated the attacks or whether they simply knew about them or whether it was just Iran's complicity simply by the fact that Hamas wouldn't exist if it wasn't for Iran and all the money and weapons and training it gives them. In either case, all roads lead back to Tehran in this fight. And so we've got Ken Pollock on to talk to us because he is an expert on Iran and he is an expert in this region and he's written a lot about this and he's going to break it down for us about what Iran's role in this is and how Iran can be defeated. Ken does a fantastic job, I can attest, and you and I see him almost every day, so so he really is able, I think, to, to put this in, in perspective. And one of the most important things I like about Ken Pollock is he has worked for the CIA. He's worked in the National Security Council in the Clinton administration twice. He worked in uh, at the Brookings Institution. So nobody can call him, you know, nobody can call him a clone of Mark Thiessen and Danny Pletka. And his yet his insights are really spot on, deep, well-informed, and, uh, and I'm always grateful. So I think one of the things that interests people when we talk about how Iran has been involved in the brutal, savage Hamas attack on Israel and the and the ensuing war, you know, everybody's sort of careful. Well, we don't really know. We don't really understand. Well, we're not really sure if they knew what was going on. I want to help explain that to people. Well, I do want to slap him. The head <laughs> but let me let me explain. I, I actually I actually think I understand this. Okay, so for the okay. Israelis, I think there's a reason behind it. The Israelis are basically focused on Hamas, right? We are gonna we are gonna go into Gaza. We are gonna kill everybody we need to from Hamas, and we are gonna free our hostages. We don't want to talk about Iran. We don't want to talk about Hezbollah. We don't want to talk about Lebanon, Syria, our government, nothing. We're talking about this, and we're not going to get distracted. And so the, for the Israelis, they are really compartmentalizing this this war. And Ken talks about that nicely in our interview. For the United States, there's an element of that for sure. We are responding to the Israelis not talking about this. But there is this legalistic attitude in the United States that is um, born of long, long arguments between your people, uh, Mark and mine, on Capitol Hill and the executive branch, which is, are these people state sponsors of terrorism? Now, obviously, we know the Iranians are, but they like to parse it. Well, you know, I don't know if they're sponsors of this act because, I mean, did they order this act? Did they know when it was going to take place? Were they involved in the planning of it? Because if we can't prove any of these things, then we can't really say that Iran was involved. This has been an argument that we've had with the executive branch about al-Qaeda, about ISIS, about Iran, about Lebanon. You know, I'm the judge in this case, and we're going to parse it out until we can exculpate Iran. And that is something we cannot let continue. So I'm really looking forward to working on that. First of all, you know, treating this as a court case is the problem that we had before 9-11 about how we treated terrorism. Well, we have to right. adjudicate this. We're, who was responsible? And, you know, our doctrine in the Bush administration, if you support the terrorists, you're as guilty as a terrorist and you're an enemy of the United States of America. And that, that part of the Bush doctrine should still stand, number one. And the, the second part is that I'm sorry, we keep hearing, we don't know if Iran was directly involved in planning this or not. First of all, this was a huge intelligence failure on the part of the Israelis, to be sure, but also on the part of the United States that we didn't see this coming. And I'm sorry, it's been a month since these attacks. We still don't know. We still can't go back into our sources and methods with 2020 hindsight. I mean, we were able after 9-11 to go back with 2020 hindsight and figure out that it was Al-Qaeda was involved, who ordered it and how it all came to be. I'm sorry, with 2020 hindsight, we still don't know 
if Iran was behind this or not. I'm sorry, either either we are completely incompetent or I just don't believe it. Either the intelligence community is so, our intelligence on Iran is so bad that we can't figure this out, knowing how the dots are connected, or they're just not telling us because they don't want to impose consequences on Iran, because they know that if they can connect the dots to Tehran and Iran, order this attack, help coordinate it, plan it, had that meeting in in Lebanon, where which the Wall Street Journal reported on, where this was all conceived and, and done. If that all can be confirmed by U.S. intelligence, then we might actually have to do something about it. And I don't think the Biden administration wants to do anything about Iran. And that's the root of the problem. You know, that, look, you know, that's exactly right, Mark. And we've, we, I talked about this with the Clinton administration, with Iran and with al-Qaeda, uh, remember, this was the administration right before 9-11, where they would lie about things happening. And the president actually called it fudging. And the reason they would lie about things happening is because they didn't want to do something about them. Yep. And and so that was really it. It was, you know, if I admit that this happened the way that I know it happened, then the demand will be, it will be incumbent on me to have to do something about this. So I might as well not admit it happened. And that way we can all just go happily about our business. And of course, that is how Iran has gone happily about its business for the last 42 years. I'm putting aside October 7th. I think there've been like 38 attacks on U.S. bases and U.S. ships since October 7th. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, since when does the United States get fired on and not fire back? They don't want to do anything about Iran, period. They're giving Iran free reign. And we know, as a wise man once taught me, weakness is provocative. <laughs> and when you when you stick your head in the sand and either don't know or pretend not to know who's behind all of this, that person gets bolder, they test you, and often they miscalculate. And that's how America gets dragged into wars. If you don't want the U.S. get drawn into a wider war, then we ought to start deterring the Iranians by by imposing some consequences on them for their actions. Amen to that. And here's our interview. Well, Ken, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks so much, Mark. It's great to be with you guys again. Great to have you. So, you know, there's been a lot of reporting and a lot of dispute over Iran's role in the October 7th attacks, whether they just armed Hamas and gave them all the training over years and years and all the weapons and the money over years and years that enabled the attack or whether they actually planned and coordinated the attack. But either way, Iran is behind it in some way or another. First of all, what's your view on that? But second of all, what what is Iran up to here? Yeah. So look, first, I think you're coming at this in exactly the right way, Mark, which is at some point we will find out exactly what Iran's role was and whether they you know, chose the date and time or, or what. But the bottom line is that, yes, Iran was heavily involved in this. Um, it is unimaginable that Hamas was able to do this without Iran. Um, it is unimaginable that Hamas would have tried to do it without first going to the Iranians and saying, A, we're planning to do this. We need your help. Are we going to have your help? And we need you to backstop us as well because we don't really know what's going to happen. But beyond that, simply the, the uh, abilities that Iran has, um, Iran's ability to coordinate these different groups to bring all to kinds of expertise. And let's also add to that, Hamas could not have undertaken this operation without stockpiling all kinds of weaponry, ammunition, food, fuel, etc., the vast majority of which had to come from Iran, right? And this is very clear. The, uh, both Hamas and all of its allies understood that once they undertook this attack, Israel would respond. And there was no expectation on their part that they would be able to get anything more back into Gaza at that point in time. So they had to have gone to Iran and made sure that they had everything that they needed, both for the original attack on the 7th of October and for the inevitable Israeli response afterwards. So I think there's no question. Iran provided guidance. They provided expertise. They also did provide weaponry and money and supplies of all kinds to make this possible. 
Whether they actually picked the date or whether they knew the date, again, I think that's anybody's guess. But we have to recognize that Iran was deeply, deeply involved in this from the get-go. It's just unimaginable that Hamas could have tried to implement something this big, this complicated, and this likely to trigger such a massive Israeli and potentially American response without Iran's explicit go-ahead and backing. So I want to talk to you a little bit about our and the Israeli equivocation on Iran, which I think I understand, but I want to hear your opinion about it. But first, what's Iran's game here? This is going to result, and you and I have discussed this more than once, this is going to result in a lot of Palestinian deaths. I think that, you know, Iran has always been willing to fight to the last Palestinian. But at the same time, it is hard to see an, an enormous upside for the Iranians, How, especially given that they haven't been interested in widening the war. What do you think the game is? So I think that Iran uh, is getting exactly what it wants from this. Um, I think that Iran has multiple angles to this. And I think that many of Iran's goals are shared goals with Hamas in the sense that First, the Iranians were very much looking to derail the normalization between Israel and the Arab states. This is something that is deeply threatening to Iran and all of its allies. If there were a unified Israeli-Arab front, especially one backed by the United States, that would have been a formidable obstacle to further Iranian expansion in the region, a major impediment to Iran's goal of becoming the hegemon of the Middle East. So Iran had to derail that. In addition, Iran is looking for an opportunity and has been for decades to drive a wedge between the United States and its allies in the Arab world. And finally, Iran wants its axis of resistance, its allies, its proxies, however we want to describe them, and of course it's a range of both, to seem like they are the great threats to the region and are able to do all kinds of things that are threatening to Israel and threatening to moderates in the region. Is it working? Is, is, is the Iranian plan working? Because, you know, we've talked about the difference between how Iran sees the world and, you know, what the reality of the world is. So is it working? Yeah, so this is my fear. And, you know, you and I have discussed this any number of times. Right now, I think it is working. And I think that in particular, if the war were to end now, I think that the Iranians and the Axis of Resistance would claim a tremendous victory. Again, they mounted the attack. They surprised the vaunted Israelis. They killed 1,300 of their people with relative impunity. And they've done all of those things I've just talked about. They have derailed normalization between Israel and the Arabs. They have driven a wedge between the United States uh, and its Arab allies. They have demonstrated that their axis of resistance is capable of taking action all across the region in ways that are incredibly dangerous for the other states of the region. Right now, Iran has done, has succeeded in accomplishing everything it's set out to. I think the big question mark out there is whether or not Hamas will emerge intact in any form. If they do, the victory for Iran is enormous. At the end of the day, you know, as you said, you know I agree with this, Iran has made clear they're willing to fight to the last Palestinian. So I think that Iran went into this recognizing that Hamas might be destroyed in this. Um, and they're good with that. That doesn't necessarily hurt Iran. Hurts Hamas um, certainly ultimately is not going to necessarily be good for uh, people living in Gaza, although there are potentially positive outcomes from this that we have to work very hard to realize. We can certainly talk about. Um, But at the end of the day, a ceasefire right now would lock in all of Iran's victories. And that's what makes it so dangerous. Because again, I know there are a lot of well-meaning people out there who just want the killing to end, but they need to recognize that a ceasefire right now, because it would lock in all of Iran's accomplishments, would simply mean more and worse wars in the future. Because Iran would do this again. They will do it again with Hezbollah. They will do it again with the Iraqi Hashtashabi. They will do it again with as many groups as they can because they will have learned that this works for them. So this attack was clearly a failure of deterrence for Iran. 
uh, right? And as you say, they're willing to fight to the last Palestinian, <laughs> not to the last Iranian, you know, and maybe that has something to do with the fact that Hamas are uh, Sunni radicals and they're Shia radicals and long term they're enemies, right? But, you know, during the Trump administration, there was a much stronger deterrence with Iran. They started attacking our bases in Iraq and Syria, and Trump responded. They drew a red line saying, if you kill a single American, Iran's going to pay the price. They killed an American. They crossed the red line, and he launched an attack on Khatib Hezbollah in, in Iraq. And then they set fire to the U.S. embassy, and he killed Soleimani. He tweeted at the, when it was still a tweet, he tweeted at the uh, Ayatollah, if you retaliate, I have picked out 52 targets in honor of the 52 American hostages, and I'm going to strike Iran proper. So don't do it. And they didn't. They backed down. That red line, theoretically, red line should continue from one presidency to the other, right? Uh, that red line doesn't seem to be enforced anymore, does it? How, how, how do we restore the deterrence that, to some extent, existed before the Biden administration came in? Sure. So first, let me start, Mark, by saying that, well, I think you're correct that that Trump was good about setting a red line and a deterrent where it came to Americans. I actually don't agree with you on about Trump more broadly with the Iranians because he walked away from what had been our most important red line, which was that Iran does not get to interfere with oil exports from our Arab allies. And, you know, horrendously, this is what started out as the Carter administration. It was called the Reagan corollary to the Carter uh, doctrine, which was that we will use force to prevent anyone internal or external from interfering with Gulf oil flows. And Trump, I think, horribly walked away from that completely and did nothing when Iran started attacking the oil exports of the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia, and ultimately led to the 2019 attacks on Abqaiq, which were just horrifying to our allies. So I think we've got a lot of work to be done restoring our red lines across the board. And, you know, I think that, that your point, nonetheless, does get at what is going to be required to restore those red lines, which is enforcing them, right? It's once again enunciating them, and then whenever they are crossed— responding. And, you know, here, I think we actually could take a lesson from the Israelis, which is the Israelis understand the logic of deterrence very well. And the logic of deterrence says that when someone hits you, you hit them back harder to make sure that they cannot possibly see any advantage in hitting you ever again. Um, you know, the, the other point that you're making, I think it's very important one embedded in, in the various points that you made are the Iranians are very cautious of American military power. They are perfectly glad to play games with our politics, but they have tremendous respect for our military power. And whenever we've been willing to employ that military power against Iran, they back off very, very quickly. And, you know, this is one of these, and I know that you and Danny have both done a terrific job in your podcast talking about this in a variety of different places around the world, particularly Ukraine, where we need to stop being scared of our own shadow, right? We need to stop being afraid of their threats of escalation, which never come about. You actually set me up for my next question, which is, who fears escalation more, <laughs> Biden or Iran? It seems like... Knowing these facts that you lay out, the Biden administration should be quite emboldened to, to, to take a strong stand here. But he seems to be terrified of escalation both in Ukraine and here. He's slow rolling the weapons to Ukraine because he's afraid of escalation with Russia. And he keeps talking about his fear of Armageddon, fear of World War Three uh, and all the rest of it. And here, you know, he's he just he keeps telling them don't and they do. <laughs> and then he says don't again and they do again. The Iranians seem to think he fears escalation more than they do. Yeah, look, once again, I'm in complete agreement with you, Mark. I mean, first on Ukraine, where I'm not an expert, uh, I'm simply a, an interested observer, but I absolutely agree with you about Ukraine. But, you know, in this part of the world where I do have expertise, again, I completely agree with you. I think that it, the evidence is quite clear that Iran is is it very, very respectful of America's military might. They do everything that they can to avoid it. Um, you know, let's notice right now, the Iranians threaten, right? They've been threatening and everyone is up in arms. My feeling is this is not terribly different from any normal day in the Persian Gulf. The Iranians threaten to do things against the United States all the time. It's just that Americans typically don't pay attention. I do 
because that's what I'm paid to do, right? So I hear these things on a daily basis. They don't do anything about them. They're all talk and no action. They're all bark and no bite because they understand the power of the United States military, and they are very cautious. And we need to recognize that this is one of our most important assets when dealing with Iran, and we need to employ it to put them in their place and mark out what is not permissible. And, you know, I'm in full agreement. We can quibble about, you know, which administration is more to blame for it. But I think we've had a number now um, that have, you know, singularly failed. And obviously, you know, the Obama administration was worst of all, because not only were they not interested in um, actually defending the red lines, you know, they were trying desperately this rapprochement and talking about sharing the Middle East between uh, Iran and, and Saudi Arabia, right? You know, even worse than, uh, than either Trump or Biden. But we need to recognize that, you know, we have this power that Iran is very frightened of it and that we don't need to take this, you know, tremendously difficult, tremendously problematic behavior from the Iranians. We can put an end to it. So, yes, I think I think you're using the wrong tense. We not we can. We could. Uh, but of course, that requires us to, you know, recognize the traits that, that you so nicely described. So I want to talk to you about what I mentioned before, which is the widening of the conflict. Obviously, this is something the Israelis are nervous of. Um, obviously, they have committed. This is the largest call up they've done in their history, the call, largest call up of reserves. They may well call up more reserves once they start to move into southern Gaza. They are now, they, I understand they believe the hostages are in Gaza City uh, underground. And so they are literally going, you know, mile by mile, tunnel by tunnel, looking for these hostages. So as we all think about the possibility of an escalation, Hezbollah is obviously, you know, that's who we're thinking about. They've been lobbying, sort of almost lackadaisically, they've been lobbying anti-tank shells and missiles across the border, a couple guys in red shirts who then got killed. So Hassan Nasrallah, and, and by the way, all the time, Hamas is, is saying to them, you know, now is the time. Now is our day of rage. Now is the time you're going to join us. We're counting to 10. Now we're counting to three, two, one and a half. And we're not seeing Hezbollah join. I have to take one second in this endless question I'm asking you to read you guys something. So Hassan Nasrallah is going to give this big speech on November 3rd, which he gave. And a lot of people thought he might announce that they were joining in. I didn't think so, because why then? But uh, for a mutual friend of all of ours, Brian Katulis, sent me something that made me laugh so hard. So it's a tweet. It says, ladies, ladies. If he gives you mixed signals, says he needs to talk to you but delays the conversation until he's ready, keeps dropping cryptic hints, monologues for hours without actually saying anything, he's not your man. He's Secretary General of Hezbollah, Hassan Nasrallah. <laughs> he's just not that into you. <laughs> he's, just not that into, he's just not that into you. Hamas. Um, I'm sorry. I laughed so hard when I read that. I thought it was the best. And I had to get it into this podcast somehow. So in this long and convoluted question, I got it in. Okay. Ken. Do you have a question out, Annie? Widening the war? <laughs> Yeah. So uh, look again, this is a really big one. I, and I know, you know, Danny, I think you as well, Mark, that I've written about this. And I want to start with the caveat. The caveat is this is a war. Wars are inherently unpredictable. Countries frequently uh, start out in one place and wind up doing things that they never intended. So it is certainly possible that there will be escalation in this war. That said, I think that the likelihood is much, much less than so many people talk about. And by the way, I think it's really good that both the Israelis and the United States are doing as much as they are to try to minimize that escalation. There's no reason to be cavalier about that. But that said, the logic isn't there, right? And let me start here. Um, I'll try to make this as brief as I can, but let me start with the simple fact that, as we talked about, there is no question that Iran was aware that Hamas was going to do this. Exactly what the details are are still unclear, but there is no doubt that Iran was aware beforehand, which means that Iran could have joined the initial attack on October 7th, right? And Hezbollah too, right? Because Iran knew, therefore Hezbollah knew, Hezbollah too could have joined on October 7th. And if they wanted a fight with Israel right now, that was the moment to do it. 
That when it was when Israel was surprised, when it was least prepared, when it was least able to respond, when they would have done the maximum damage to Israel. If Hezbollah had joined in on October 7th, it would have been like October 1973, when Israel faced simultaneous surprise attacks by Egypt and Syria. And the damage done by a joint Hamas-Hezbollah attack probably would have been an order of magnitude worse than what, uh, than what actually happened. So if Hezbollah wanted to fight Israel, that was the moment to do it. And the fact that they chose not to is absolutely dispositive that they do not want a fight with Israel. And I think that everything that we've seen to this point in time has simply uh, buttressed that line of thinking, right? As you point out, Danny, we've seen lots of relatively low-level stuff from, from Hezbollah, rocket attacks, small numbers of rockets. Hezbollah is estimated to have over 150,000 rockets and missiles. What they're firing is singletons or even dozens, uh, nothing major, small-scale ground activity, no indication that they're looking to do something major. And Iran, not even that. Right. Iran just crows. They cackle. They threaten. That's basically it. Right. So, again, and by the way, I guess I should also add, you know, we've seen this movie several times. Right? We've seen major Israeli incursions into Gaza in 2010, 14, 19, 21. Right. Again, in all of those occasions, Hezbollah, Iran, they threaten, they uh, they warn, they try to frighten. They might do a little bit of stuff, but nothing major. So is it possible that Hezbollah gets involved at some point? It's possible, and if you want, I can spin out some scenarios, but I think that they're all much less likely than other people believe. And again, that's no reason to be cavalier, but it's also no reason to suddenly believe that this is the beginning of World War III, and therefore we have to do everything we possibly can to simply shut it down prematurely. Could Israel fight a two-front war with Hezbollah and Hamas at the same time? Do they have the capability of doing that? And also, might they decide to do it sequentially? Could they just decide that we just have to put an end to all of these threats you know, from Hezbollah, from Hamas? You know, they're all allied. The stage one is rooting out Hamas from Gaza. Stage two is let's take out Hezbollah and end this thing. Yeah, so uh, another set of terrific questions, Mark. So I'll start with your first one. Could Israel fight a two-front or three-front war? Absolutely. Right. No question about it. They could do so. They'd prefer not to. Right. And I think that's why, and again, Danny and I have talked about this quite a bit. That's why they're focusing on Gaza. And that's why Israel has been relatively quiet about Iran. They want to focus on Gaza. The more that they can employ the full range of their military assets against Gaza, the better off that they're going to be. But I think you're absolutely correct, Mark, to ask this question about a sequential operation, right? And there, the analogy is not 1973, it's 1967, right? We should remember in 1967, it's really the Syrians that start the Six-Day War. That's the real threat. Those are the the group that they're, they're the folks that the Israelis are going back and forth with, but the Israelis make the decision they want to take out the the Egyptian army first, and of course they try to keep the Jordanians out, but the Jordanians feel they have to, so Jordan attacks Israel. So the Israelis take out the Egyptian and Jordanian armies, and at the end of it, they're faced with a choice. Right? Do we want to go after the Syrians too? Uh, there is a debate. It's not very long, but there is a debate, and they decide, yeah. We want to take out the Syrians as well. This is our opportunity. We have all this uh, intelligence, including from Ellie Cohen, the famous spy, um, who now everybody knows about because of the Netflix series, uh, and they decide that they're going to go and take out Syria. So it is possible that in the at the end of this, the Israelis will decide to turn on Hezbollah and do the same thing to Hezbollah. I will say I think that that is also unlikely. I think that Gaza is going to be hard enough. I think that there are going to be, there are, have already been Israeli casualties. There will be more Israeli casualties. Um, I think that it is unlikely that Prime Minister Netanyahu or whoever may be Prime Minister at that point in time decides that they want to mount another war. Again, it is opening up Pandora's box. You never know what's going to come out. I think that if they win big in Gaza, Whoever is prime minister of Israel is going to, to feel like, you know what, this was enough. Um, let's pocket this win and let's not roll the dice a second time. Will they win big in Gaza? They certainly can. 
right? The question, as always, is going to be casualties and their tolerance for casualties. And, and let's recognize it's their own casualties, including casualties among the hostages and casualties among the Palestinian people. I mean, we haven't brought it up, but I know you, you guys are both acutely aware of the fact that the Israeli government actually does care about Palestinian civilians, would prefer not to kill Palestinian civilians, completely contrary to Hamas, which has, you know, trying as best they can to uh, have as many dead Palestinian civilians as they can. But I think that these are going to be considerations for the Israelis. And the big question mark is, you know, as they start to do some of these bigger operations, right, and we're now seeing them start to do these bigger operations, they've surrounded Gaza City, they're clearly starting to uh, either excavate or destroy some of the tunnels, we don't quite know what, but they're kind of moving in there what the casualty levels are like in terms of their own soldiers, Israeli hostages, and potentially Palestinian civilians, I think those are ultimately going to be important considerations for the Israelis. At some level, it might cause the Israelis to, to choose to pull back, right? That's what we saw with the Second Lebanon War in 2006, where the Israelis were militarily winning, right? They were winning incredibly ugly. It was worst Israeli military operation pretty much ever, um, but they were still doing enormous damage to Hezbollah, but they decided that the amount of casualties that they were suffering wasn't worth it for them, and so they chose to pull out. You know, I think this time in Gaza is going to be very different. Obviously, what started 2006 was, you know, a pale shadow of what started this war. I think that the Israeli government is much more committed. The fact that it is now a national unity government where you have opposition figures, part of it, I think that is also going to make it more likely that Israel will be willing to tolerate casualties and really finish off the job. But again, the question isn't so much does Israel have the military capabilities? They absolutely do. The question is just politically, are they going to be willing to take whatever casualty levels that they ultimately suffer? Yeah, no, I mean, I think that absolutely is the question. The big inflection point, I think, Ken, realistically speaking, is the hostages, right? If they get the hostages out, then it will become much more difficult for them to withstand the pressure. And again, you know, it doesn't matter what the real number of casualties are. The Israelis know how many Palestinians they're killing. The Israelis have lost, uh, as of the moment we're recording, 38 troops in the operations in Gaza. And so that will absolutely be the question. Let me just, you know, especially as we come to the end of our time, let me just widen the aperture a, a little bit. Okay, so, yeah, okay, the Israelis can destroy Hamas. They can destroy the Hamas we know. Right. And they have. They've taken out um, well over a dozen, probably two dozen Hamas leaders, uh, local militia leaders, local rocket guy, local security guy, Isadine al-Qassam Brigade, this guy. And, and I think Hamas, uh, probably unlike what most Americans realize, actually is a very large and very serious and very organized military operation. Um, so there are lots and lots of people who aren't foot soldiers to take out. And the Israelis are going to systematically do that. But for as long as Iran is around, can't they just rebuild another Hamas? Can't they just, you know, rebuild another Hezbollah? I mean, can Israel really actually destroy it for as long as Iran exists? Yeah. So unfortunately, I think that you are correct, Danny, that ultimately Iran is the enemy. Iran is the one stoking all these flames. Um, Iran is the one who is working assiduously to assist all these groups. And, and let's remember, Iran is backing every group that is seeking the destruction of Israel. Iran is backing every group that is trying to kill Americans and drive them out of the Middle East, um, including, you know, crazy Salafi jihadist Sunnis as well. Um, they are also backing groups that are uh, trying to subvert and uh, mount terrorist operations against any number of the Arab states. At the end of the day, you know, we get caught up in this Sunni Shia narrative that, quite frankly, the Iranians don't really uh, cotton to. At the end of the day, the Iranians are willing to back any group that is using force to overturn the regional status quo, right? And so, yes, at the end of the day, they are 
the ultimate target. But I also want to pick up on, on the first part of your question, because I think that's important as well, which is to say that, yes, there's no question that uh, Hamas can be rebuilt. Uh, you know, we've seen the PLO rebuilt at least four times in our lifetime, right? Uh, it's very hard to get rid of these groups. But that doesn't mean that driving them out of Gaza. And from my perspective, I think that has to be the ultimate Israeli goal, and that should be the ultimate American goal, that that isn't meaningful, right? It is meaningful. And it's meaningful because part of defeating Iran, right? Part of it would be regime change in Iran, um, but part of defeating Iran, you know, a lesser goal is to start taking these allies away from the Iranians, right? Taking away the terrorist groups and the militias that Iran uses to support their effort at hegemony in the region, their efforts to destabilize the region, their efforts to overthrow all these governments and attack and destroy Israel as well. And the only way that that's going to happen in this case is if Hamas is evicted from Gaza the way that the PLO was evicted first from Gaza itself in 67, then from Jordan in 70, and then from Lebanon in 1982. And, you know, it's worth focusing on that because that is also the only pathway to a better future for the Palestinian people, right? We shouldn't lose sight of the fact that you know, all of the data that was available indicated that most Palestinians in Gaza hated Hamas, right? Didn't want Hamas ruling over them. Saw Hamas as corrupt and oppressive and wanted to be rid of them as well. And they were right to believe that, right? They can, certainly enjoyed it when Hamas attacked Israel because it was kind of a fight the power, but they didn't like living under Hamas. If Hamas is left in control of Gaza, they will reconstitute. And we will be back at this at some point in time, right? If Israel destroys Hamas and drives it out of Gaza the way that it did with the PLO in 67 and again in 82, and the way that Jordan did with the PLO in 70-71, it opens up the prospect for a new leadership for the Palestinians, one that might actually be interested in peace with Israel and a better life for the Palestinians rather than just endless war the way that Hamas is. But I mean, yes, of course, you're right. And and I, I just finished writing something about what it opens up the prospect for, which is actually, you know, better Palestinian governance if, in fact, you know, everybody else in the world is more serious about that than we have been for the last 40 years. But part of Hamas's goal, part of Iran's goal here is also to take out of circulation any moderate Palestinian, anyone who wants that better future, anyone who wants to do business with the Israelis. Is there a way they can't succeed at that, given the brutality of this war? Again, I think that it will depend very much, Danny, on what comes after. Right? I think that it's entirely possible. Yes, um, Palestinians will be <laughs> livid at the Israelis for some period of time. That is inevitable. Um, you know, we've seen this in any war. But what matters, and again, we've seen this in any number of wars, what really matters is what happens afterwards. If the international community can create circumstances where Gaza is stable and secure and can actually pick its own leaders, and those leaders aren't allowed to use force to gain control over the political and economic uh, resources of the Palestinian people, I think a very different leadership could emerge one that would recognize the value in long-term peace with Israel. And, you know, we should remember that. Um, we've obviously had any number of, you know, very different kinds of Israeli governments. Um, some have been interested in peace, some haven't been interested in peace. But those that have been interested in peace have repeatedly put on the table deals that were actually quite reasonable, none more so than Ehud Olmert in 2008, which, you know, the deal that Ehud Olmert put on the table in 2008 was peace, Right? Every other person on the planet would have looked at that, did look at that and said, this is what peace between Israel and the Palestinians looks like. And the Palestinian leadership, Abu Mazen, Mahmoud Abbas, rejected it. Right. And, you know, that that's the problem here. Again, I know that you guys know this, but that is the root problem here, is that even when we have had Israeli leaders that were willing to make peace and were willing to put entirely reasonable deals on the table, we've never had a Palestinian leadership that was willing to accept it. Right? And there are a lot of different reasons for that. But it does start with the fact that you have these rejectionists like Hamas 
out there with weapons willing to kill any moderate leader who tries to do so. And so again, getting Hamas out of Gaza, evicting them, making it so that they are no longer in charge and that whoever is in charge of security in Gaza is not going to oppress the Palestinian people in the same way. That's the first step on this path to a better future for both Israelis and Palestinians. So I had a I have a different closing question I want to get to, but just something you said uh, sparked a question. You said that the majority of people in Gaza don't want to live under Hamas. And I would love to believe that that's true. But the evidence suggests otherwise. Uh, the I mean, first of all, they elected Hamas. They put their leaders in power. There was polling the, in 2016 that they showed what was support for knife attacks against Israelis. And in the West Bank, where they were very moderate, it was 49 percent support in knife attacks against Israeli citizens, whereas in, in Gaza, the support was at 80 percent for knife attacks against Israelis. So the moderates, half of them wanted to, to knife Israeli civilians in Gaza, 80 percent wanted to. There was a 2010 movie by a director named Shlomi Eldar called Precious Life, and he tells the story of bringing a kid from Gaza who had some genetic disease that was causing that he was going to die from and they bring him back to Israel they take him to an Israeli hospital he's saved by Israeli doctors the, the treatment is all given for free and the director is driving back to Gaza with the mother and she's and he asks her what do you want for your son now that he's been saved and she says she wants him to grow up to be a suicide bomber and kill Jews this is what we're dealing with in Gaza. And maybe it's partly it's indoctrination and brainwashing and ideology and all the rest of it. But I don't know that it's true that the people of Gaza want to live in peace with Israel and they, they don't want Hamas. They might not like the fact that Hamas has brought this upon them right now. They might not be very happy with what their, their current situation. But I just don't know that that's true, that the majority or even a, a, a significant minority of people in Gaza want peace with Israel. So we're, we're talking apples and oranges here, Mark. Okay. Because you're talking about um, Palestinian support for attacks on Israelis and even support for Hamas's attacks on Israelis. I'm talking about Palestinian uh, approval of Hamas's rule of Gaza, right? And those are two different things. You're talking um, about politics. Yes. And ultimately, again, the data that we have, and, and look, let's be careful here, right? None of us really knows, um, you know, this is one of these circumstances where tools of Western public opinion are not so terrific. Um, but nonetheless, the evidence that we have, both anecdotal and polling, is that most Gazans don't like Hamas as their rulers, right? Again, they see Hamas as corrupt. They see Hamas as oppressive. Uh, they don't like that. They do like, the, as I said, the fight the power aspect. Now, could they uh, could they actually live with Israelis? Um, you know, obviously, no one knows because it's never been tried. But there's certainly anecdotal evidence. Palestinians, you know, that is, Arab Israelis, have lived as part of Israel for decades, and many of them are assimilated and part of the community there, and do find it entirely plausible to live cheek by jowl with Israelis. But beyond that, we've seen any number of historical conflicts over the millennia, where, you know, people believed that these people were incapable of living together, living side by side. And, you know, they may still hate each other, but they find a way, right? They find a way once peace is established. I mean, you know, I think we can all remember uh, periods of time, well, maybe not remember, but uh, we all know that there were periods of time when the French and the Germans, uh, you know, no one could imagine that they could live at peace with each other, or the French and the British, for that matter, um, you know. At the end of the day, it's possible, and more important than that, I mean, even to this day, there's obviously frictions between France and Germany. It's less about do you actually love the other person, less about even do you like the other person. It's more about are you living in circumstances where your life is reasonable, your life is tolerable, and you, you are willing to, you know, you like that life better than a life of violence, a life of warfare. And as I've suggested, you know, I don't think that we've really tested that proposition with the Palestinians. But again, we have tested it with uh, Palestinian Arabs living in, in Israel. And actually, I should also add, you know, Egypt and Israel, the cold peace. And everybody said it's a cold peace. It's a shame. It's awful. My God, wouldn't it be great if we could have a cold peace between Israel and Palestinians, right? That would actually be a huge step up from where we are today. I guess you have to decisively defeat the other person because the way the reason the Germans and the French live side by side is because Germany was decisively defeated and they had no choice but to live side by side in peace 
Uh, well, so maybe the first step in reconciliation is victory. And that's exactly what I'm suggesting here. I think that an Israeli victory over Hamas is absolutely critical. And I think you've just added another reason for that, Mark. Peace through strength. Exactly. All right. Exit question for me, Ken. And we alluded to this before. You know, I've said, yes, you're right. They need to oust Hamas from Gaza. You said that, you know, the PLO was out of Gaza, then they were out of Jordan, then they were out of Lebanon. The PLO was, I think, a much smaller army than Hamas is. And the PLO did not honestly have an outside sponsor, a godfather of the caliber of uh, Iran. So I do think that the circumstances have changed, which makes it so much more difficult. If you have to look forward now, and we've all talked about this a little bit, how does it end? Um, we already heard the, the Biden administration and the Europeans talking about another peace process, which makes me want to tear my hair out. Because if we have the same peace process, it'll look exactly the same in the end. Is there any outcome here that is positive for as long as Iran and the Islamic Republic remain in power? Is there any outcome here that is not just a pause before the next war, in your view? I think for Gaza, yes, it's conceivable. Uh, Whether we'll do it is anybody's guess. But I think it's entirely conceivable for Gaza. And then again, I think that if Israel does succeed in... Uh, smashing Hamas and driving it out of Gaza, and the international community is willing to step up and uh, you know create a process of, and I'm going to use the word, I know you hate it when I do so, but I'm going to use the term nation building. Right? And it's less nation building, it's more state building. I think part of the problem was the nation piece. You don't have to build everything. You simply have to secure the country, provide enough economic resources to keep people uh, living until they can revive their own economy. And then it is a process of state formation over time, which is eminently doable. If we were able to do that, I think that it is entirely possible to have a different Gaza, one without Hamas, one that could be at peace with both Israel and Egypt, and we shouldn't leave Egypt out of it. Egypt has as many problems with Gaza and Hamas as Israel does. I think the bigger bigger issue that you're getting at, though, Danny, is ultimately the problem of Iran, right? And and we've now talked about it uh, to some extent, but ultimately... Iran is looking to do a series of things in the Middle East that are inimical to, you know, almost everyone's interests except Iran and Russia uh, and maybe a few other countries, North Korea, to the extent they care about the Middle East. Um, I'm actually not at all convinced that they're in China's best interests either. I just don't know that the Chinese have figured that out yet. But at the end of the day, what Iran is up to in the Middle East, you know, trying to destroy the state of Israel, trying to become the hegemon and bring all of the Arab states under Iranian suzerainty, uh, trying to drive the United States out of the region. All of this would be terrible for pretty much every country in the world, except maybe Vladimir Putin's Russia, maybe Venezuela. Again, maybe we can come up with a few others. But for everybody else, it's just outright horrible. The problem is, of course, most people think, most countries think incredibly short-term, Right? And even the United States, uh, you know, it goes back to points that both you and Mark have raised already uh, in our interview, where, you know, we look at the Iranians and we say, yeah, they're attacking our troops, but eh, big deal. It's not that big, you know, it's not that important, right? So a bunch of guys get rocketed, big deal, right? It's too hard to fight the Iranians. And again, you know, I've been hearing this since the Reagan administration, and it is just outright mistaken. And all we're doing is encouraging the Iranians, and all it means is that we wind up fighting them even in an even worse set of circumstances at some point in the future. I was going to ask one exit question, but I thought of another, so I'm going to ask two exit questions. I'm sorry. We've already taken so much of your time, but what you're saying is also interesting that we can't just can't let you go. Exit question one. What is the relationship and the alliance between Iran and Russia? This is something we didn't get into at all. But this, you know, we now have up on Capitol Hill where Republicans want to separate out aid to Israel from aid to Ukraine because these are separate conflicts. They're not separate conflicts. Iran and Russia are allied. Talk to us about the connection between Iran and Russia and maybe even China. 
Yeah, so this is such an important question, Mark, and I know we're at the tail end, so I'll try to keep it brief, but you know, you should you should definitely do another podcast just about this. But and you're right, there is a China end as well, right? There is this new axis forming out there. Um this is one of the biggest things that has been going on in the Middle East is Russia has had this cooperation with Iran for decades now, right? It began after the fall of the Soviet Union with intelligence cooperation between the KGB and then the FSB and Iran's various intelligence organizations, all of them trying to watch Sunni fundamentalist groups in the Caucasus and Central Asia. And it has now grown into a pretty significant political military alliance, right? This is a very real thing. And the Ukraine war in particular has driven Putin into Khamenei's arms, right? I mean, it's just kind of the world turned upside down. We now have Iran arming Russia, right? You know, I never thought I would live to see the day when Iran was arming Russia, but they are. They're providing in particular drones, but a variety of other things as well that Russia desperately needs for the war on Ukraine. And again, I don't want to suggest that the Russia-Iran alliance was a key to Hamas's decision to attack Israel or Iran's decision to back Hamas, but it wasn't irrelevant either. I think there's no question. The fact that Iran now feels so much more closely tied to Russia, that they feel like a Russia has its back, that Russia needs them, and that they can count on Russia for vetoes in the Security Council, for diplomacy on the world stage, and ultimately for military support, conceivably even to back us off, right? All of that is playing a role in Iran's increasing aggressiveness in the region. China, you also mentioned, again, China's a little bit tougher because China's interests are ultimately different from Russia's in the Middle East. But you're right to bring them in because at the end of the day, they all do share enmity with the United States. And, you know, we are seeing uh, China taking a more active role in the Middle East, not just economically, which they've been doing for decades, but now diplomatically. And, you know, clearly coming at America's expense. And I think that this Russia-China, sorry, this Russia-Iran and potentially China axis is something that we need to think much harder about. We need to recognize that it is out there and it is deepening and solidifying. And it is increasingly a an enabler of Iran's bad behavior throughout the Middle East. Great question. Thank you very much. So we will take your advice and do an entire podcast on this, I think, Danny. It will agree. Um, my yeah, real exit question. Yeah, like- Oh, um, no. My real exit question. <laughs> my real Go. exit. I said I was going to have an actual. If I, that was my uh, my pre exit question. This is my actual exit question. So, the Biden administration keeps warning Netanyahu and the Israeli government: learn the lessons of our mistakes after nine eleven. Don't overreact. Look at all the things that we did wrong and be careful. Right. Maybe the Biden administration ought to look at its own mistakes and the mistakes of the Obama administration and do a, do that kind of a reassessment. What if you were if you were to help them do that kind of a reassessment, saying maybe we what mistakes did we make in our Iran policy and our policy uh, in, that may have contributed to emboldening Iran to take this action or and uh, and all the rest? What would you say the lessons that Joe Biden ought to take? Are. Oh boy. Yeah, again, a great question, Mark. And obviously, I could take that in a variety of directions, but I, I'm going to make my answers brief since that was your exit question. And I'll say first, lesson number one um, don't think that you can share the region with the Iranians or that our allies can share the region with the Iranians because the Iranians don't share. They're not interested in sharing, right? They want it all. Second, you know, Obama made as good faith an effort to reach out to the Iranian leadership as it was possible to make. Iran will never have an American president more pro-Iran than Barack Obama. And they were uninterested. They squandered it. They slapped him in the face. And we need to learn the lesson. The Biden administration, the United States, needs to learn the lesson that what this illustrates is Iran isn't interested in a better relationship with the United States. And I say this as someone, you know, at least twice burned. 
by the Iranians, right? I was uh, Bill Clinton's last director for the Persian Gulf on his NSC. When he tried to uh, rapprochement with Iran, it failed, and I supported the Obama administration. When they tried again, it too failed, right? And the Iranians have been very clear. They're not interested in a rapprochement with the United States. They want the United States as their enemy. Right. And we need to recognize that. And we can't assume that, you know, somehow the Iranians are they're afraid they're misunderstood. Uh, if, you know, if we talk louder and slower, if we look less threatening, they're not interested in any of that. They want us as their enemy. And, you know, again, you can also say, well, there are lots of countries that don't like us. Lots of people who say that the United States is their enemy. True. But there's a big difference with the Iranians. The Iranians act on it every day. They and their minions and their allies are out there trying to hurt the United States, to hurt Americans however they possibly can. And so, you know, I've seen administration after administration come to office and say, oh, Iran, they're a problem. Maybe we can have a rapprochement with them. Let's see what happens there. And when that fails, then it's say, all right, let's just try to ignore them. You can't have a rapprochement with them, not with this regime, because they're not interested. And if you try to ignore them, you do so to your peril, because they don't stop. And they are going to keep coming back at us until they are gone or until we make it very clear that there is going to be a price to be paid for doing so that is too high for them to accept. Amen to that. I am done. I do not have three fake exit questions. <laughs> I'm nearing the exit. But I have, my, I have one more exit question, Ken. I have one more. <laughs> the exit, exit question. No, I'm exit, exit, exit. questions as always, guys. This is why I love listening to you guys. So well, good. we're so grateful. We're so oh, grateful. Please. Thank you. Thank it's you. My really. pleasure. Take care, guys. I'll see you Take soon. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thanks, Ken. So first of all, Ken is brilliant, but particularly... He, he seems to appreciate my questions, Danny. I know. <laughs> I, didn't, I, I didn't hear him saying how brilliant your questions were. That's so I, 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 think, I think Ken is, an, is a great appreciator of good questions and, and solid thinking. You, sh, you, you need to work on your questioning and improve. Yes, I'll, I'll take that to heart, Mark. <laughs> For sure. You've got potential. Uh, I, thank you. Thank you so much. I'll just follow your lead. As you I might actually learn something do. about this region one day. Yes, well, maybe one day I will learn something about this region because, damn, it is a gift that keeps on giving. I will tell you, and, you know, we're doing a very short outro today because uh, this was a rather long discussion, a great discussion, I thought. But, uh, yes, uh, people used to ask me, why did you get into the Middle East? And I said, because that way I don't have to learn any new names. <laughs> you're never going to be out of work if you're a Middle East expert, Danny, as, you, as you've learned. It's really true. And you know what? We have had so many, this is just, just to finish what you said, you know, at the beginning of our introduction, it is so true that we have had more than innumerable opportunities to stop the Iranians in their track, to deter the Iranians, to stop them from kidnapping Americans, to stop them from shooting at Americans. And in each case, we have this sort of biblical attitude that if we turn the other cheek, everything will just end up perfectly. And you'd think that one leader, somebody, would learn a lesson from this. And the answer is they haven't. And, you know, we all know where this ends. Well, you know, Ken Pollack, as you pointed out at the start of this podcast, he and he pointed out at the end, worked in the Clinton administration. He's a Democrat. He's learned. He's had the introspection to learn from his own policy mistakes, as he pointed out, and the policy mistakes of the administrations he served. And boy, is it time for a reassessment in the Biden administration of this whole ungodly effort to bring Iran into the community of nations. I, I want to do at some point, I'm going to write a column on this and, and I want to do a pod on it. But one of the most overused phrases in post-Cold War diplomacy is so-and-so needs to make a choice. Russia needs to make a choice. Iran needs to make a choice. Hamas needs to make a choice. Uh, China needs to make a choice. Maybe they've chosen. And maybe we should 
build our policy around the fact that they have chosen and stop trying to imagine that somehow by by being nicer and more pl- plaintive in our pleas to them, that somehow we can convince them to make a different choice because they, they've chosen. Russia has chosen. Putin was never going to be a Democrat. Iran was never going to become a U.S. ally. Uh, maybe China doesn't want a peaceful coexistence with Taiwan. You know, maybe North Korea doesn't want to uh, forego reunification of the Korean Peninsula. We need to listen to the words of our enemies and they tell us exactly what they want and then take them seriously and stop thinking that we can make them choose different choices. Mark, once again, you have inevitably stumbled into the correct answer. And <laughs> I commend you. I commend you. Squirrel gets an acorn every once in a while. Exactly. I commend you to read the piece I have out in National Review in which I say exactly what you just said about Iran. Maybe it's time for us to think about them in a different way. Maybe they don't want peace and maybe we should not seek peace with them. So we'd love to hear what you think about that and everything else. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for all your notes to us these weeks and for your comments on our Substack. We're super grateful. Take care of yourselves. See you next week. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 